remember the feeling of, of getting into a car you haven't driven before? Um, a couple years ago, my brother got married uh, in Colorado, and we rented a car. And it was supposed to be a small car, and all they had was a Chrysler Pacifica, which is a, uh, a minivan style. And uh, so we got in there, and I had to figure out the dash. Um, the, the shifter was just a knob. Some of you probably have some of these things in your cars already. For me, it was new. Um, everything was on the was was digital on the, on the as far as the controls were. So touch screens. And I remember, we were driving and pulling out, and we got to um, the red light coming out of the airport where the rental car place was, and the car engine just stopped. And um, I thought, well, this is strange, something's wrong with it. And then when the light turned green, and I tried to start it again, start the vehicle again, which you can't really do because you don't put the keys in the ignition. You just have to be there in the car with you. Um, uh, and, it, and, and I touched the gas, and it was still on, and it went. <laughs> and uh, I came to realize that later on, I felt when my wife was looking through the handbook of the vehicle there, um, from the glove compartment that it's just a feature that saves gas when the car is idling and shuts off and then it turns on again when you push the gas. It was a strange thing. Um, maybe some of you remember some, some, some cars where you get in and you, it's, you, know that, you know that feeling. You have to look around. You have to see where the switch for the lights is, change the angle of the mirror, and so on. It takes a, a, a little while to, to figure out. And then as you drive off, though, you revert to what you're used to, revert to your instincts. And you think you're putting the lights on and the windshield wipers start going, right? Or you need the windshield wipers and you can't find, like, on, on your, in, in your car, they're on this side and now they're on this side. And if you've always, you know, driven a Dodge truck and now you're in a Ford, you don't know where things are or how to do this thing. And, um, and, and Ford's doing it wrong because this is how Dodge does it or vice versa, right? And you revert to instinct. And the same is, is true in relationships in a sense. Um, uh, how many of you moved away to a different school when you were a kid? That had, a, that was, that had a, an impact on you at some level, I would think. Um, my dad planted a church in Connecticut, and there we lived for 14 years. And um, my junior high school, we uprooted and moved to New Jersey, South Jersey, from a quiet, kind of a country town in Connecticut to very suburban and busy suburbs, really, of Philadelphia. And we moved my junior year of high school, and so I went to a whole new school. I actually went from having um, my, uh, a neighbor down the road went to the same school, pick us up in Carpolis, to taking a train to the metro, to, to my school, and that was a totally different thing. Dad went with us the first couple times, and then we were on our own after that, with the train car and everything. It was weird. It was weird. Uh, and learning how to be a friend with the two or three people who were kind of closest to you at your desk, and then uh, and, and just different, different challenges. And people don't respond the same way. For some people, that would be like a dream. Oh, new people. For other people, that would be a nightmare, right? For at least a week or two, and probably longer, it felt like a fish out of water. It, it took an effort to work at doing things differently. And that's how life is. It's stressful. It's stressful. Things change. 
Um, if you don't like change, too bad. It's going to happen, right? Everything changes one way or the other. Crisis forces change. But it doesn't. But we don't need to be stressed. Um, stress is there, but we don't have to engage and participate in stress. Similar things are true as Christians. When we learn to navigate in a different world than maybe you grew up in or found yourself in, um, there's that kind of fish-out-of-water feeling. That was true in the first century, wasn't it? Very much so. And it's increasingly so here in the 21st. In fact, in our, in our culture, what used to be thought as the Christian West, particularly Europe and North America, used to be taken for granted that you lived in at least a Christian, at least a name only, uh, country. In fact, unless somebody was uh, Jewish or Muslim or another definite religion, Hindu, etc., it was assumed that everyone in our culture was more or less, at least in name, Christian. A lot of that has been swept away. And here's the exciting thing. Anyone who is really a Christian now really stands out. And anyone known as a Christian will attract scorn and criticism and discrimination at various levels here. We enjoyed a place of privilege in the world before that we grew up in that was actually very different from what Christianity has enjoyed through the centuries. In other words, this was what it was like from the beginning. I've heard many um, a Christian apologists comment on our society and say we are more like the first century in our day than the other epochs of history in America. The day is closer to that than anything. And we're not used, as Christians have had to be, to be treading that line here, a face of the shift, unlearning uh, certain things, unlearning new habits and and, and not having a standoffish, holier-than-thou attitude at the same time, not sinking into the culture without a trace, right? There's a tension here. In a world that looks at uh, today as religion in general, uh, with, 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 as a troubling thought, visaging extremism and violence and stifling free thought and subjugation of women, etc. These are the things you hear in the media. What about science and suffering and human sexuality? What about the Crusades? How can you say there's one true faith? How can you take the Bible for what it says? Doesn't the Bible justify slavery? How could a loving God send people to hell? So how does a Christian behave when surrounded by a world that doesn't understand what we're about and potentially hostile? And the answer comes in 1 Peter chapter 3. Yes, we walked through this earlier on in the year, but this is part of the, a piece here of the Great Commission. Peter here will quote today from Psalm chapter 34, written by David. A psalm that some people think was David while he was on the run, kind of as an exile. And one of the phrases David uses that Peter quotes in here is seek peace and follow after it. Pursue it. Hunt it down. Peace may be hard to find. This peace that we're to be looking for should be hunted down just like when you... If, how many of you misplaced your glasses this week? Or keys? Or something? You lost something and you had to find them. Alright, good. I wasn't the only one. I couldn't find my, my, uh, my car keys. 
And I got a text from Tara yesterday as she was um, working in the, in the office on the on secretarial stuff. She said, hey, there's a set of keys in the front door here. I put them on the foyer table. And I said, were they three keys on the ring? She said, yep. I said, those are mine. I left them there like on, uh, on Thursday. Just, so just, just, just for your um, uh, confidence and security's sake, the keys to the church were just left right in the door there for four days. <laughs> So you feel good about safety, etc. Peter says, seek peace and follow after it. Hunt it down. Like you would those keys or that the, uh, the favorite book or something you, you can't just put you, you just can't put your hand on. You don't know where it is. Hunt it down. Follow it. The way you would uh, with a dog. How many of you have ever had a dog that's run off and you've got to hunt that thing? How many of you still have that dog? <laughs> Pan a dog that's panicked or run off. Now, you whistle for that dog, and if it's a dog who is panicked, your whistling isn't going to do it. It's not going to come back and whistle. You have to do the work. You have to learn a new practice, learn a new habit to chase down a hunting. And here's the thing. You have to learn it because, because uh, learn the new ways, learn how to navigate in a society that may be hostile to the Christian faith because it will be too easy to lapse into the way that Babylon behaves. Here's what I mean. Christians are supposed to stand out as distinctive, having the fragrance of Christ's character in us, right? But when we do, and when we are mocked or criticized for it, what are we tempted to do? We're tempted to mock and criticize right back, and be sarcastic right back. And then we are no longer distinctive, right? Because we're behaving just like everyone else. And the world counts that as a victory, don't they? Don't give them that victory. Uh, repaying slander with slander, uh, just just as if we were um, uh, in in the old life. But friends, the Lord gives us new ways, new habits of heart and life that are be, that are to be learned among the church body. First of all, in mutual discipleship, you see that in verse eight. Of, 1 Peter chapter 3. So then they can be practiced and applied in the wider world, verse 9 and 12 through 16. And God forbid we get this wrong in the church, let alone in how we relate to the outside world. Because the church is a laboratory. It is the way we practice your families and the, and the, and the church family. It is the way we practice uh, relating to one another with a fragrance of Christ, firm in the truth, speaking the truth in love, as we then give it to the lost as well. So Peter here insists on a basic rule of mind, humility and kindness, and a firm engagement with the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. The earlier Christians were to assume that they were all called to be tender-hearted, not just some people in the church who might be more naturally that way, but this is the way of the Spirit. Not to be rough, not to be cross-grained to one another, however difficult that might be. And so we are, have been given the person of the Holy Spirit who enables us, participates with us in bringing out the life of Christ that's been imputed to us. So I want us to look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 17. Finally, be you all of one mind, 
having compassion one of another. Here he's talking to believers together, one another, sir. Love as brethren. Be pitiful, that means to have a sympathy. Be courteous, to have a, 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 a tenderheartedness. Not rendering evil for evil, or railing or insult for insult. But contrarywise, what? Blessing. Blessing. Knowing that you are thereunto called that you should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days. Here's the good life, he says. Right? Let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile or deceit. Let him shun, eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue or pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. Here's the Lord's help in this, right? But if we're going to walk contrary to this, look what he says at the end of verse 12. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? But and if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happier, blessed are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify or set apart or make sacred the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, evil hostile to you, they may be ashamed, they will hate to admit it, <laughs> they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conduct in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. You might notice a pattern in this passage here that is uh, very much the pattern of the New Testament. Galatians 6.1 says, Do good to all men, right? Especially those who are of the household of faith. So it follows that pattern. The household of faith, and then to all men, even those who are your enemies. So it kind of moves out from there. Right? And here's the thought here of 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8-17. through 17. Here it is. Live out of a transformed life in Christ to speak of Christ in you. Live out of a transformed life in Christ to speak about Christ in you. In you. He's going to give two things. The people, people you're to relate to, and then the reasons why you are to live this way. Okay? So the people, first of all. Notice, first of all, to the family of God. That's each other. That's fellow believers. But he says again in verse 8. Be you all of one mind. That doesn't mean you think everything, the same thing that everybody thinks. Alright? We're little robots here. What that means is this that were unified in the faith, the gospel that was once delivered to the saints, the faith of Jesus Christ, and we are walking in humility. Having compassion, a sympathy, one of another. It's easy to hear all kinds of things and to put up calluses in our hearts. The Lord wants us to have a tender heart toward each other. In fact, that's what he says in the rest of verse 8, love as brethren, that word be pitiful is to be tender-hearted. Be kind one to another, tender-hearted. That's the idea here. Be courteous here. 
So, live as a transformed life to speak of Christ in you. First of all, through the family of God. That's where, you, that's where we start here. And just micro family of God, your family at home as well. There would be little expressions of that. Right? In fact, that's where we're probably going to spend the most of your time. So that is where uh, that's that's where you're really going to work it out among your family. Is there a kindness, a compassion, a, a tenderness toward one another in our families? Uh, that's the fragrance of the Holy Spirit as that happens working in you. So first of all, the family of God. But then beyond that as well, because look what he says. Not rendering evil for evil, or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing. Not reacting in vengeance, but as the Lord did, Father forgive them, blessing those who wrong you. Knowing that you're there unto call that you should inherit a blessing. Let your, let your lips be restrained. Uh, let you shun evil. Let you pursue good and seek peace. And you're going to have people who are going to be against you. So not only the family of God live this life, but also to the community and in that community to your enemies. To your enemies. Because this will give opportunities to speak the transformed life in you. Because it's not natural to act this way. Some of you may have heard of Lee Strobel. He was a Chicago Tribune journalist uh, who was an atheist who turned Christian as he investigated the claims of Christ in the Bible. And he shared a personal story about a, a kind deed that provided an opportunity to share Christ with a stranger. He said, I remember flying into Midway Airport in Chicago during a blizzard. An engineer from India was sitting next to me. As we talked, they found out he was planning to take a bus all the way to O'Hare Airport and then have his pregnant wife drive from a distant suburb with his two young children to pick him up. Look, I have a car at Midway, I told him. How about if I give you a lift home? He was grateful. And during our drive, he asked why I had been so willing to go out of my way for him. I tried to explain. As, so here's someone who wonders, why would you be nice to him, Right? Has anybody ever done something so kind for you that makes you want to pass on a kindness along to someone else? You know that slightly. Well, Jesus Christ has done something incredibly kind for me, I said. And as we talked, he began to understand that God's outpouring of grace had motivated me to help him. When we arrived at his house, he thanked me and said, I'm going to have to do some thinking about all this. And just a little uh, example here of maybe uh, how your, uh, your kindness, your engaging, your cultivating opportunities will give you the words to speak here and give the answer that we'll see later on in these verses here. Because it registered, the words of Jesus here that he was able to share, registered with that man because he had experienced in a practical way the love of Jesus and it, and it, and it showed an integrity not that Jesus, we're not providing an integrity, we're showing the integrity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it does transform and changes us. That's one person who was in his community. But what about your enemies? What if that man was an enemy? And so now we see in 1 Peter 3 and verse 9 and the rest here that Peter's going to go right to the tip of the spear. He's going to go right to the edge. And he's going to talk about relating to your enemies. There's something that comes before giving an answer. The word is, uh, in 1 Peter 3.15, is a defense of our faith. There's something that comes up before this. There's a response to those who are against our faith. 
There's a command that we're going to see to be always ready. And there's an attitude that we keep when Babylon tries to intimidate us or even persecute us as we live as disciples of Christ. And we engage the world with good and pursue the art of man fishing. And in this context here, he quotes Psalm 34 and says, Seek peace, do good, offer blessing. So there is a context in, in our engagement with our enemies, even. There's a context that is assumed here and is even is framed up very specifically of actively doing good even to our enemies of our faith. In fact, he's going to say, Out of that, be prepared, be ready. That in spite of your kindness, sometimes we have these Pollyanna uh, versions here of, of uh, I'll put this, put this one up on the screen here a, a couple weeks ago, um, opportunities as we look in Colossians 4, moving from contact, waiting for a disciple here. And you know what, that's a very linear, that's a very flat model, isn't it? You know what that really looks like in real life? Like this, right? Um... And we don't need to have a Pollyanna kind of assumption that, oh, if I'm nice to people, then they're just going to be coming uh, at our feet asking, for how can I be saved? What must I do to be saved? It doesn't happen that way. It may. And there will be experiences where that does happen. But isn't God gracious to say, okay, here's the reality here. This doesn't mean your circumstances are going to get better, necessarily. They might. And, but you actually might have people more hostile to you for your kindness. Think about the Lord Jesus, right? Was there anyone who did more good and was more kind? No. And they crucified him, right? And so what he's saying is this, that there will be those in Babylon, even as you are doing good to them, who will still be hostile. Who will still be hostile. So what does he say? Just write them off. No, what does he say? Look at it. Um, after he says, He that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil, and his lips they speak no guile. Watch your tongue as believers. Hate evil, do good, seek peace, pursue it. God sees this. He will strengthen you with your prayers. The face Lord is against them that do evil. And who is it that will harm you from you followers of that which is good? Generally... Generally, what he's saying is there that as you engage in doing good, there will be a favor with people, generally, right? That's just a human principle. But, he is a realist because he also knows in verse 14, but, and if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy or blessed are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. Okay, so there's our three groups of people. The, um, the, to live in a, 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 a transformed life it gives opportunity to speak of the grace of God in our lives. You have the church body, the family of God. You have the community who may respond to you positively. And then you have those who will dig their heels in. Okay? Now, why does he tell us to live this way in spite of even people who dig their heels in? Here's an important thing. Here's the motivating factors. First of all, because it is what you are called to do. It is what you are called to do. Now, this sounds a little bit more like duty, right? 
And in this essence, it is, right? Because we have nothing to prove, but we have one person to please, our Master and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so he says, um, uh, uh, in earlier verses here, he says, Who is he that will, that will harm you if you be followers of good, but, and if you suffer for righteous sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. He's got the idea here of the fact that you have been called for this. You have been blessed to be a blessing. So God has called us to this. God always blesses us so that we can be a blessing to others. This is the way of our Master. This is the way of the Apostles. This is the way of the early church. This is the way of today. But then he also says that there is a reward. There's another motivating factor. This is what you're called to do. This is part of the package, right? Secondly, because you will be rewarded. Blessed. Blessed. Even if you suffer for what's doing right, in verse 14, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. You will be rewarded. There is an eternal reward. I'm going to talk about that in a few minutes here to close up. But thirdly, there's another reason why we engage in a transformed life to speak of the hope that's in us. Because we will have an opportunity to speak about our hope. An opportunity to speak about our hope. Let me give you an example. The Apostle Paul, when he was put in chains and had to testify as to why he was put in chains and the, and the um, accusations that were made against him. There was his grand opportunity, right? To speak of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how Christ had made him new. Who he was before Christ. And you can see this in the end of Acts, Acts 24, as he starts find the Felix and, and to Agrippa and others. There, um, even the even the elitists of his day were like, Paul, this is something. You got me thinking here. You almost persuade me, but you're crazy. <laughs> it gives an opportunity to speak about your hope. Look what he says in verse 15. But don't be afraid of their terror. Okay, don't be afraid or worry about threats. But Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man to ask your reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Here's what he's saying in essence Worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, you have an opportunity to be always be ready to explain it and do this in a gentle, a gentle and respectful way. You'll say later on in verse 16 and 17, living a life of integrity, a transformed life, having good conscience. So if they speak evil to you as evildoers, they may be ashamed. They'll be ashamed when they see the good life that you live because you belong to Christ. He says it's better to suffer for doing good if that's what God wants than to suffer for doing wrong. I want to talk about that verse 15 here as, a, as, as, a, as a, the close here of this message. You can only have an answer to every minute ask your reason of the hope that's in you with meekness and fear if you know what that hope is and you know why you have that hope. Know what that hope is and why you have that hope. I'm going to talk about what that hope is here in a few minutes. But are you fully persuaded 
of the hope that is coming. Are you fully persuaded? Are you absolutely convinced of the hope that's in you? See, the world out there has lots of objections. Here's just a few of them. These are some of the common objections um, that unbelievers have. Aren't we better off without religion? Doesn't Christianity just crush diversity? How can you say there's only one true faith? Doesn't religion hinder morality? Doesn't religion cause violence? How can you take the Bible for its word? Hasn't science disproved Christianity? Doesn't Christianity denigrate women? Isn't Christianity homophobic? Doesn't the Bible condone slavery? How can a loving God allow so much suffering? How can a loving God send people to hell? You may have heard some of these things or caught traces of them from some of your unbelieving uh, uh, friends here. Objections, right? And so there is a there is a process here that we may be needing be engaged with that we could call apologetics, or some call pre-evangelism, helping people understand answers to these objections. And I some just some practical questions. Can you discern an unbeliever's onset questions and engage with some thoughtful answers? What are some of the basic questions unbelievers might have or have asked you? Can you build a basic defense and connect key questions to it? What are the keys to doing that? You say, wow, that's that's a lot of stuff. I don't know where to start. And I want to encourage you with this. If you are in Christ, every one of you has the most powerful apologetic that outweighs any of these logical answers to some of these questions. And it is this. It is what the blind man in John chapter 9 said to the Pharisees and the religious leaders who said, what happened to you? Skeptical. You know what he said? I don't know. But this I do know. I once was blind, but now I see. There's nothing more powerful than that testimony here, your apologetic here, your your testimony here of how Jesus transformed you, your testimony. So some of these questions are overwhelming. And by the way, I do think we need to engage in some answers with these things. These are real questions. And God has used some of the answers for these all kinds of resources out there today. Um, I can point you to some. Um, God has used some of his resources to break down some skeptics and atheists, so I'll share those, share it here in a second. But you can always fall back to John 9.25, what Jesus has done in your life. That's powerful. Especially those who knew you before Christ, right? That's powerful. Always be ready, so we're told to be ready. Um, in his book, Has Christianity, Christianity Failed You? Robbie Zacharias points to one of the greatest proofs for the truth of Christ and the reality of his resurrection to change lives of Christians. And he writes this. Robbie just passed this year here cancer. He says, During the course of nearly 40 years, I have traveled to virtually every continent and seen or heard some of the most amazing testimonies of God's intervention in the most extreme circumstances. I've seen hardened criminals touched by the message of Jesus Christ and their hearts turned toward good in a way that no amount of rehabilitation could accomplish. I've seen ardent followers of radical belief systems turn from being violent, brutal terrorists to becoming mild, tender-hearted followers of Jesus Christ. 
I've seen nations where the gospel, banned and silenced by governments, has nevertheless conquered the ethos and mindset of an entire culture. Then in his own words, he lists some examples of Christ's power to transform. In the middle of the 20th century, after destroying all the Christian seminary libraries in the country, Chairman Mao in China declared that Christianity had been permanently removed from China, never to make a return. On Easter Sunday in 2009, the leading English-language newspaper in Hong Kong published a picture of Tiananmen Square on page 1 with Jesus replacing Chairman Mao's picture on the gigantic banner and the words, Christ is risen, below it. I've also been in the Middle East and marveled at the commitment of young people who have risked their lives to attend a Bible study. I've talked to CEOs of large companies in Islamic nations who testify to seeing Jesus and wondering what it means. The British author A.N. Wilson, who only a few years ago was known for escaping attacks on Christianity, celebrated Easter, this was in 2009, at a church with a group of other church members proclaiming that the story of the Jesus of the Gospels is the only story that makes sense out of life and its challenges. Wilson said, My own return to faith has surprised none more than myself. My belief has come about in large measure because of the lies. This is a hardened atheist. Because of the lies and examples of people I have known. Not the famous, not saints, but friends and relatives who have lived and faced death in light of the resurrection story or in the quiet acceptance that they have a future after they die. Matthew Paris, a British atheist who visited Malawi in 2008, wrote an article as an atheist. I truly believe Africa needs God. I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that a Christian evangelism makes in Africa. I used to avoid this truth, but Christians, black and white, working in Africa, do heal the sick, do teach people to read and write, and only the severest kind of secularists can see a mission hospital or a school and say the world will be better off without it. So even hardened atheists were touched by the hope that they saw in people, gave them reasons to ask, or gave them opportunity to ask the reason of the hope. One more thing. As Peter here is giving these words in verse 14, but if you suffer for righteous sake, happy are you. He then quotes from Isaiah chapter 8. And he says, And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. Isaiah 8, 13 and 14. There's a bad king of Israel, his name was Ahaz. He was a king of Judah. And there was a crisis that was coming to his nation because of an invasion by the Assyrian army. And the kings of other kings of Israel and Syria wanted Ahaz to join them in an alliance. But Ahaz refused. And so Israel and Syria threatened to invade Judah. Behind the scenes, Ahaz had made a treaty and confederated himself with Assyria. And the prophet Isaiah warned him against ungodly alliances, and he urged him to trust God for deliverance, and he said, Sanctify the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies himself. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Let that be the thing that keeps you up. God. And that's the phrase that's quoted right before he tells us to sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer. In other words, this. 
when God is set apart, Jesus Christ, the risen, ascended King, is set apart in our hearts as our Master, our King, what do we need to fear? Our enemies, the worst they can do is hurt us, but they can never eternally harm us. Instead of experiencing fear as we engage those who may be enemies, we can experience blessing, Peter tells us, if Jesus Christ is Lord in our hearts. That we're happier, blessed. It's a joy, unspeakable, full of glory. Whatever happens, as you are engaging in this world, and you are faced with, with, with hostility because of your faith, if you are in Christ, you cannot be eternally harmed. And Christ must not only be trusted for your eternal life-saving, but also for eternal life-giving in this life. You see, in Christ, the Gospel promises an unfathomable inheritance, free to receive by faith, provided in the hands of the grace of God and His sacrifice, the just for the unjust, in verse 18. This is the hope that is in us. Look what he says in verse 15. To give an answer to every man to ask your reason, the hope that is out there somewhere is in you. In you. Christ. That gives power to endure all things painful. Do you remember what Paul said in Romans 8, 18? For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. He talks about a similar concept in 2 Corinthians 4. And scripture reminds us that our weeping and pain may be very genuine. But we will one day experience an eternal glory with Christ that will have such a weight of beauty and joy and we'll make someone said, as, as someone said, our trials look like a scratch in the penny of a billionaire. I'm told if you've ever had a chance to visit the catacombs of Rome, the burial grounds underneath the city of Rome where they bury people, that's where the Christians fled and, and, and worshipped together, and, uh, and some of them even lived um, these under these tunnels here. You'll see some symbols of faith painted on the tombs. And there's three common symbols that tend to appear. The dove, the fish, and the anchor. The dove symbolizing the Holy Spirit. The fish, because the letters of the, the Greek word for fish, ictus, it, um, kind of an acronym for, the, for the, uh, the word in Greek, Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. And then an anchor. And the anchor came from the idea that as Christians were going through very difficult, insecure times, their hope in them anchored their souls. People who are being thrown to the lions. So our calling is to honor Christ our Lord as sacred in our hearts, knowing that because eternity is secure by faith in God's unchanging promise, the pain of this life is then put in proper perspective. So be ready. Be prepared. 
be always prepared to give an answer of the hope that is in you. Let's pray. God transform our marriages, transform our parenting, transform our grandparenting, transform our workplaces here uh, in us. Uh, use us. Change our lives continually. You have set a goal of completing the work that you've begun in our salvation. And we're in process now. You secured us, and you're shaving us. Uh, you are uh, forming us, molding us to look like your son. Glory can shine on. Lord, I pray that you would help us in this to live transformed lives of Jesus Christ's disciples so that we can give an answer and be prepared to give an answer of the reason of the hope that's in us. Your Son, Jesus' name.